Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to take a little bit of a different structure for our podcast. So normally I have many guests on, and we talk about everything, about yoga and birth and babies and all the topics in between. And today it's just going to be me. I want to talk about an important topic, and I'm calling it Five Questions to Ask Before Your Birth. So this is a podcast to help you think about your birth and having a very open, honest conversation with your care provider before your birth and really before you hit the end of your third trimester. So many times a woman is going to either stay with the care provider that she had during her yearly well-woman checkups and just proceed forward if that person's an OBGYN, or maybe she's going to to ask some friends or family if they have a suggestion for their care provider. Now, what tends to happen is if that's the case, the pregnant mom may not have thought too much about how well the care provider is going to support her vision of birth. She may have just signed up saying like, great, you take my insurance, let's just plow forward. And then oftentimes as the woman becomes more educated and really starts to think about how she foresees her birth, it doesn't necessarily align with how the care provider practices. So one thing I have noticed from my conversation with so many of these amazing speakers I've had on the podcast is it really comes down to your care provider. If you can go into your birth experience, knowing that your care provider is on the same page with you, handing the trust over to your care provider, knowing you've had a conversation, you're aligned with your philosophies, you trust the opinion and the management or even the lack thereof management, it's going to feel a lot safer for the woman to birth. If she's going in in the back of her mind saying, you know, I'm not really comfortable with how this person has treated me, I don't feel respected, I don't feel that my wishes have been heard, or perhaps I don't trust we're completely on the same page and I'm really going to have to advocate for myself, 
that may not lead to the most functional birth. We need the mom to really hand over the decisions, not completely in the sense like uh, you make all the decisions, but trust that the decisions made are something that the two people agree on, that the care provider knows how the mom wants to birth and the the mother knows how the care provider practices. I've always told my students and my clients that you should not try to change how the care provider practices because that's their right, but you can change care providers. So I call it circling the wagons that once the mom goes into labor, she wants her support team to encompass her and hold the space so that she can really dive into the deep hormonal state of labor and let her body, where she can work with her body, work with her baby, work through the dance of labor and trust the process. If she's starting to think outside of that, it can can lead to adrenaline, anxiety, which isn't so supportive of birth. All right, so let's start to think about some of the questions to ask your care provider. And I also recommend setting up a separate meeting to have this conversation with your care provider. Don't necessarily do it at one of your checkups that's scheduled, because there you are sitting on the examining table with perhaps a sheet over your lap and a little thin paper uh, gown on that Maybe you don't feel quite as comfortable. You can't really feel maybe as respected or having much of an eye-to-eye conversation. So I recommend being fully clothed, sitting at a desk, you're on the same level, same playing field, and you guys can have an open conversation. So before you have that conversation, let's think about what it is that you want for your birth, or at least that you foresee, because let's face it, birth unfolds on its own path, but it is good to have some general ideas of where you feel strongly about what you want to see for your birth. So the first thing I'd suggest is to start to think about what is your personal birth philosophy, and then you can see if it matches with that of your care provider. So there are two basic philosophies to approaching birth. The first is the medical model, which emphasizes the pathological potential of pregnancy and birth. So it's more the art and science of managing pregnancy and labor and delivery and postpartum, and this approach tends to be a bit more managed. The other side of that is the medical is the midwifery model. That tends to subscribe more to the idea that pregnancy at birth is a natural physiological process and it should inherently be trusted. So the more pathological, the more medical model, they tend to look more for a problem. There's going to be more testing, more heavily managed care, as opposed to the midwifery model that's going to say, we inherently trust the body's innate wisdom to birth, and I'm just going to watch closely and watch things unfold, and should a problem arise, then we'll deal with it. So it's a matter of looking at when you want to deal with the problem. Do you want to anticipate a problem and a problem that may never actually arise, or do you want to wait and see if the problem does arise and then tend to deal with it then? So Think about what you feel best with. Now, you may be a person that says, I want every test. I want to know what problem may arise, and I want to have a solution. Or you may be the person that says, I really do trust my body, and I trust the process, and I do want to be a little bit more low-key and not have all those tests. Keeping in mind, sometimes tests give false negatives and false positives. You have to sit with what you feel best about. So once you've figured out 
your birth philosophy, it's important to ask your care provider what your care provider's philosophy is. Now, it shouldn't be assumed that if you're with a OBGYN, a medically uh, MD, a trained uh, obstetrician, that that person's going to follow the medical model. I know many OBs that actually follow more of the midwifery model, that they're more, let's just sit back and see what arises. I also know some midwives that go more towards the traditional medical model, that they're going to test a lot. They're going to anticipate. So don't just assume by the title which philosophy that person holds. Let's also then start to dive a little bit deeper into how aggressively do you want your care managed? So keeping in mind, if you're a low-risk woman and you don't want to be heavily managed, Don't go with a high-risk practice because that's their way of practicing. They are used to making sure that every T is crossed, every I is dotted, and that they're really heavily managing and overlooking their clients. They may not necessarily give you that space as a low-risk woman to see what happens because that's, again, the way to practice. So some questions you can ask your care provider to get a sense of how aggressively do they manage the care. One would be, do they allow intermittent fetal monitoring or do they allow or do they insist on full-time external fetal monitoring? Now given that ACOG, the American of College, uh, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has actually recently released a statement saying they are really supporting the use of intermittent monitoring. So keep that in mind. We can start to also pull in some evidence-based information that you can talk to your care provider about. So first question, is it going to be full-time fetal monitoring or is it going to be intermittent? Now, keep in mind as well, if you do have an epidural, if you do have Pitocin, that is going to remove the possibility of intermittent monitoring, and you are going to need full-time monitoring to make sure that baby's tolerating the labor well. Another question could be, are you allowed to eat or drink freely throughout labor? Some care providers are going to say, only clear liquids upon arriving at the hospital. And others are going to say, unless you have pain management or you have Pitocin, you can eat and drink freely. Also, once a woman is in active labor, she's not likely munching on too much food, but it is nice to have the option if she feels her energy is getting low. You can also ask the care provider about traditional versus non-traditional ways of pushing, and not just pushing, but actual birthing. So the most common way for a woman to birth is on her back. Now, unfortunately, physiologically, that's not the most advantageous for the mom because it's pushing the sacrum up into the birth canal. It's actually decreasing space for the baby to fit through the outlet of the pelvis. Also, unfortunately, is that how that is how many care providers are actually taught. Some care providers do have a broader range of skills about helping assist a baby being delivered if the mom is squatting or on all fours or even standing or kind of in a half squat. I've had some care providers that say, as long as I can get some view, I am happy to support that way. And I've had other care providers say, you can start to push in any position you want, but when it's time for the baby's head to be crowning and I'm helping with the delivery, then I want you on your back. And this is not something you want to start negotiating with while you're pushing, you want to have a clear idea of how your care provider is going to manage that part of your birth. 
You can also have a conversation about required mandatory IV fluids. Some care providers are going to say, just have the HEP lock in, and others are going to say, I'm insisting on mandatory IV fluids. And then you can even have a conversation about natural ways to augment labor. So say you're hitting your due date or your past your due date, and you're starting to examine the idea of medical induction, but you'd rather avoid that. Is your care provider going to be open to the idea of maybe stripping your membranes or recommending acupuncture? Or is your care provider going to say, I'm not comfortable with that? And of course, then you have to think about what you're comfortable with. So these are just a few ideas that you can start to think of with how you want to see your care provider manage your care or overlook your care. All right, let's move on to our third question. Again, most of these questions have sub-questions. So let's look at what kind of schedule will you be on? Now, some of these decisions may be hospital protocols, but others may, again, be up to your care provider. So discussing them ahead of time. I'm a firm believer that while you're in the middle of laboring, you should not be negotiating your labor. Again, remember my idea of circling the wagons. You want your support team holding your space so that you can birth. That is your focus while in labor. It's not about trying to negotiate the schedule or or sticking points with your care provider. All right, let's start to look at our list here. How long can you labor before artificial augmentation, meaning Pitocin, assuming the amniotic sac has not broken? So if you are just happily laboring and things are just methodically moving along, does your care provider have a certain schedule in which they feel you need to follow or the hospital? Now, my own first birth, I was with a midwife, and I will say it was long, and she just kept saying it's slow and methodical. I was making progress. It was slow, but I was making progress, and she was not pushing that at all. My water hadn't broken. My blood pressure was great. Baby's fetal heart tones were great, so there was no concern about mom or baby. It was just long. So you need to have that conversation with your care provider saying, if things are just slowly moving along, I'd rather avoid Pitocin. Do you have a time parameter set about that? And then how long can you labor if water has broken? Now, this is going to vary greatly depending on care provider. I have seen some care providers say, I need that baby out within 24 hours. I have seen some care providers say, I need to see you in active labor within 24 hours. I have seen some care providers say, I want you to come in right away. Others will say, let's try to split the difference and maybe it's 12 hours. And I've seen some midwives go much further. Again, usually it's looking at, does the mom have a temperature? Where's the meconium, which is the baby's first bowel movement? So there are some variations of what how that question can be answered. But again, it's good to know. So should your water break, which really only about 10% of women have the water break before the onset of labor, what what are you looking at? And if your water breaks while you're in labor, again, does the baby have to be out within a certain time? Let's move on to our next question of how long can I labor with labor augmentation? So if you are on Pitocin, again, is there a schedule that you need to follow? Now, again, ACOG came out with guidelines saying that what we used to believe, that idea of a centimeter per hour of progress, is no longer relevant, especially if a woman has an epidural. We're now seeing evidence saying she will need a longer time as well as for pushing. 
Which leads me to my next question of how long will you be allowed to labor in the second stage? That is the pushing stage. Now, for most women, they're in transition. That's the stage right before pushing. The contractions are pretty quick, one on top of the other, about one or two minutes apart. Once the woman hits second stage, you can either go in a few directions. You can either have that immediate urge to push, Michelle O'Donnell calls it the fetal ejection reaction, or she could actually have a bit of a quiet time before she's ready to push, before she feels that urge to push. And during that time, the contractions actually slow down. So where they were about one or two minutes apart, now they can be anywhere from three to five minutes apart. I had a client one time where her contractions actually spaced out even longer. So instead of being three to five minutes apart, they started to space out to six to eight minutes apart. And she was starting, she was pushing and we were changing positions and we were really uh, strongly trying to encourage baby to descend and for her as she was pushing. And she started to get to that three hour point. Now in most hospitals here in New York City, they do have a three hour rule. Now, my client's blood pressure was fine. The baby's heart rate was fantastic. And yet she was hitting that three-hour mark. And she knew it because it was a clock directly in front of her bed. So as she was pushing, she could see her time slipping away. And that started to create some huge fear and anxiety that should she hit the end of that three-hour time, she was afraid she'd be faced with the diagnosis of failure to progress, baby was too big, or whatever you want to call it, and it would have to face a cesarean. So we talked about the fact that the average mom has three to five minutes between contractions, but she had six to eight minutes. So she actually didn't have quite as much as many contractions to push and make progress. So we did talk to her care provider, and her care provider did say, okay, that's true. You didn't push nearly as, as many times as someone who had more frequent contractions. Yes, you can have some more time. So that helped the situation. So instead of the mom seeing her time slip away as she hit that three hours and starting to get anxious, which is going to produce adrenaline, which is going to decrease oxytocin, which is going to create some uh, dysfunction of labor, she was able to put that out of her mind and have a little more time. And truthfully, once she got that okay, the baby actually came out about 15 minutes later. So let's keep going with how far past an estimated due date can a mom go without being induced, assuming mom and baby are fine. So again, we're looking at schedule issues. So some care providers are going to say, my way of practicing is I am comfortable with 40 weeks and six days. You might meet some care providers that say 41 weeks and six days. You might meet some care providers that say 40 weeks in one day. And again, a lot of it will also have to do with mom's age, uh, how many babies are in there. But it is good to know a basic idea of what comfort level your care provider has. And then you can start to ask about natural ways for induction. Okay, I'm hitting this estimated due date. I'm hitting where you're letting me go past. Are we going, can I explore other options? How do you feel about that? So again, these are things to keep in mind. And then lastly for this segment is how long can you labor at home? Again, this is going to vary if you're a mom with her second baby and you're going for what's called a VBAC, a vaginal delivery after cesarean, a vaginal birth after cesarean, feedback, then your care provider might be a little bit more uh, apt to have you come in earlier. If you are not in that situation that your uterus has not been, had not had an incision, your care provider might have a little bit more leniency with you. So you do want to know what their general idea is. Now, if you're looking to avoid having a lot of routine intervention, the idea is that you stay home as long as you're comfortable with. 
And if you're thinking you want to get in to have pain medication earlier, then you'll want to get in a little earlier. Now, most care providers do not want you coming in until you're at least in active labor, meaning that the contractions are starting to come about three to four minutes apart and that that process has been happening, that that pattern's been showing for at least an hour. So let's look at some ideas about that. So you may have your care providers say, okay, you're a low-risk woman, uterus is great, I'm feeling confident everything is great, and you want to avoid interventions, why don't you come in when the contractions are 3-1-1? Meaning that the contractions are lasting a minute, and they're three minutes apart, and you've seen that pattern for an hour. You may have a care provider that says, you know, I'm a little bit more conservative, I'd like to have you in the hospital earlier, let's go for 5-1-1. Five minutes apart, lasting a minute, for a whole hour. You can also keep in mind if you're traveling a great deal to get to your place of birth. Uh, my friends in New York City, if there is a lot of traffic as you're trying to head cross town, some of those things are to keep in mind. So those are some ideas about a schedule that you may be facing and the fluctuation of time that you might have. Now let's look at some bonus questions. So the bonus questions, especially if you're not feeling comfortable with some of the answers that you've gotten from your your care provider. So maybe the question is, how long can I labor before I get pit? Assuming the amniotic sac has not broken. If mom is okay and baby's okay, can we have more time? And that question really is a very non-confrontational way of asking for some more time because you're not putting mom at risk and you're not putting baby at risk because if mom or baby is not okay, then you don't get more time. But if mom and baby are okay, what harm is it for asking for more time? Because it's really kind of showing that the decisions being made if mom and baby are okay are not based on medical necessity. It's based, again, on arbitrary schedule. And you shouldn't really have to give birth based on someone else's schedule. It really should be about how your body's functioning and how your baby's tolerating the labor. Is mom okay? Is baby okay? Can I have more time? So those are the bonus questions of what kind of schedule can you expect to be on. As you're reviewing and interviewing different practices, it's important to look at the rates of that practice because that's very much going to tell you how that practice practices. Again, if you're a high-risk woman, you should probably not be with a midwife because her rates may not necessarily... She First of all, she couldn't do a C-section she needed, but those rates not, may not reflect the need, the the medical care you need. And if you're a low-risk woman looking to have affiliate interventions, you want to be with a practice that does not have high intervention rates. So what are those rates that we want to look at? We want to look at the C-section rate of the practice. If you're looking to avoid a cesarean, but your practice has a 60% cesarean rate, that can tell you that there is more chance than not of having a cesarean. If your practice has a high induction rate, and again, if you're looking to not have an induction, Go for, a rate, go for a practice that has lower induction rates, as well as episiotomy rates, which truthfully aren't done too much anymore. What is your instrumental delivery, meaning forceps or a vacuum extraction rate? And does your practice work with more high-risk or low-risk women? So these statistics are really going to tell you how the practice practices. And if you want a practice that you feel, should, should you want a cesarean, that that's what they do day in and day out, that's the practice you should be with. So you need to think about, again, not 
what someone else is telling you to do, but what you feel safe, safest with and what you really want to see as the bigger picture of your labor. And the last question is, when does your care provider arrive at the hospital or birth center? And then how involved is he or she in the labor process? And I think this one, this point particular, can be a little bit confusing for some, especially first-time moms. I had just been meeting with a new student who is 19 weeks pregnant, which is actually a great time to start thinking about this. Uh, sidetracking a little bit about that because this might be interesting for some people. Here in New York, I've talked to several OBs and they've said that it is not as advantageous for them to take a new client after 23 weeks. The insurance payout is just not is not as valuable to them. So the student that I was speaking with at 19 weeks, she actually had some time on her hands to think about making a change. And when we were talking, she was saying that she is with the midwife and she's feeling comfortable with that, And but she had assumed that the midwife would be with her during most of the labor process because she was thinking she didn't need to have a doula because she'd have her midwife there. Now, there's some truth to that. Well, I don't think that she should forego a doula. I think, granted, I'm going to say I'm biased here as a doula. Uh, I do think doulas add a great amount of value. And But the truth is midwives tend to spend more time with the laboring mom than an OB. Most obstetricians are not in the room too much. They may come check out thing, how things are going, check in on the mom, maybe do a vaginal exam every now and then. But ultimately, they're going to be there for the pushing stage and maybe not even the whole pushing stage, really, as things progress and they're needed there to help catch the baby. And that also can think about when do they arrive at the hospital? So especially if you're thinking this care provider has a lot of uh, office hours and they may not necessarily want to run to the hospital as soon as you arrive if they're in the middle of their office hours. Of course, they might also be in a big practice. So if you get to the hospital and your care provider is likely not there, you're likely going to see a resident, maybe even a student or the attending on call then. And then once it's assumed that you're going to, or confirmed that you're going to check in and stay in labor and delivery or the birth center, then your care provider is often notified and then will in a timely manner make their way to the hospital or birth center. But if you're thinking that you want your care provider there as soon as you get there, you need to have that conversation ahead of time because that's likely not going to happen unless it happens to be a solo practitioner. So knowing when or feeling comfortable with when your care provider arrives at the hospital or birth center. Another reason I think that question's pertinent is because if you've had a conversation with your care provider and you have talked about that you're going to have intermittent monitoring and that you'll that you won't have a full-time IV, that you're just going to have the portal for the IV and that you want freedom of movement and maybe this is your the birth plan that you guys have signed off on, but if your care provider is not there to help support that, you may be with a care provider that does not or will not adhere to that conversation and is going to support you how they feel best. So having an understanding as to when your care provider is going to arrive at the hospital or birth center, and then a realistic idea of how involved he or she is in the labor process. So that's a lot to chew on, I know. So I'm going to ask you just to sit with that and to really sit with what you want and how you're going to foresee your birth. Yes, it can change on a moment's notice, but just having that conversation and that trust with your care provider can help you 
more easily enter into your into your labor uninhibited by thoughts of, oh no, I'm going to have to argue about this. So I hope that gave you something to chew on. And as you have that bigger picture that you have been able to align yourself with a care provider that can support you. And remember, this is your birth and it's important to you and it will leave an imprint and a blueprint on your life. And that is going to impact the way you foresee birth and the birth in which you speak to your children about. So please, please take this seriously, think about it and find the best support you can for yourself, for your baby, for your family. Thanks for listening and happy birthing. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.